Hello, all things Montessori community. Rachel here. Hope everyone's been just having a great week so far. I'm so excited about our episode today. If you guys got to watch Jamie at the refresher course, you know that she talked about adapting our Montessori history work to a post-2020 world. And it was such a fascinating session. And I felt like, you know, it was worth us revisiting on all things Montessori. So that is what our episode is about today. Jamie and I sort of dig into her topic in a little bit more detail. There are lots of links and things that we talk about throughout this episode. And so I'm going to try to link all of them I can in the description, but I'll also be sharing them on Instagram because I know that, you know, it's easier sometimes just have them spread out. And of course, if you have any questions, reach out to us. We are supported by Patreon. Thank you to all our patrons. You guys, we couldn't do it without you. Seriously. If you want to be like one of these amazing people, you can sign up on our Patreon page. The link is below. We would love to have you. Speaking of our community, I sent out a newsletter last week and I just wanted to update you guys that Jamie and I are going to switch to doing podcasts episodes every other week. The only big reason for this is because <laughs> we are super swamped with the opening of our new school and with the launch of Rising Tide Montessori. There is so much going on. So Jamie and I just felt like it was better for us if we can put a little bit more thought into our episodes and you know bring you that amazing content, but it'll be every other week. The best thing about this is that Montessori isn't radically changing every day or every week. It's not like we're a news podcast. So I think it will still be extremely beneficial. And again, if we get inspired, we might do more than every other week. It's just where we are at right now. And we just appreciate all of your support with all of that. This episode is brought to you by Sapling Supply. So Sapling Supply. It is the best, and we really like this company. Sapling Supply makes simple, elegant furniture for all your child's educational needs. Handmade in the U.S., each piece arrives at your door ready to use. No assembly required. Um, How great is that? And soon, you'll have the chance to meet the two dads behind Sapling Supply. So you can join them at this year's virtual Montessori event. The American Montessori Society, or AMS, they're holding an annual conference, the biggest gathering of Montessori professionals in the world. So to find out more, you can visit www.sapling-supply.net. From there, you can find links to their virtual booth and set up a time to chat with the team at Sapling Supply. So the conference dates are March 5th and 6th, and be sure to check out Sapling Supply at the AMS conference. It's such an amazing event. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode all about history. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, Rachel. How are you? I'm great. Looking at snow. It'll probably be melted by the time this episode comes out, but yeah, snowing like crazy here. Yeah, and we've got ice everywhere here, but thankfully... Um, not, not at all what, uh, Texas is experiencing right now. So sending oh my goodness. love and support yeah. to all of you there, though, hopefully by the time this is out, your lives are, uh, back yes. to, hopefully you have power. Yeah. Yes. Back and to normal. Things are okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, crazy, crazy. Um, so to all of our listeners, thanks for, you know, I know we took a, we've taken some weeks off it's been extremely busy on our end, and Jamie was preparing for the refresher course, and I don't know if any of you guys got to tune in, but it was amazing. And so if you tuned in or if you didn't tune in, doesn't matter. We're going to do a little 
you know, kind of recap of what Jamie talked about on Sunday. And it was all about history. Jamie, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you talked about with the refresher course before we dive in? Sure. So uh, what we what I really wanted to bring to people's attention was a recognition of um some issues within the way with some of the things we do in our approach to history at the elementary level and some um, and and some awareness to why particularly that's it's important to pay attention to that now after the last mm-hmm. year especially of events in our in our in the United States so this was a United States focused conversation but the the um well i mean the events of the last year uh there's a lot that's happened worldwide that are similar uh and um and i think that some of the techniques we talk about are applicable to any type of history not just us history mm-hmm. so but because it was a us conference i really focused on a us history approach amazing so your talk was all about you know adapting history to a post 2020 world Yeah. And and especially what you just said about the events that have happened over the past year and how important that is in our history work. Um, So I just wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, um, why you were called to, you know, to this work. I, I, I know that it's very important, but, you know, why did you feel compelled to talk about this specifically? Well, you know, so for the last... I don't know, 12 years now, I've been working uh, in the training world, you know, training Mm -hmm. teachers. And um, thanks to uh, my students, particularly my Black students, uh, who really helped me to interrogate a lot of our materials. So I'm really grateful to them. I'm grateful that they pushed me on all of this. It's something I've been aware of and have been you know, talking about um, officially since I became a trainer as well. Um, but I, I really, you know, realized that that our approach to history needs to be inclusive in a way that it hasn't been. And I, and I think that's been unintentional. The Montessori history approach was created in the mid-20th century um, by Europeans, predominantly Europeans. And so it was obviously a product of its time and and a product of the approach to the discipline of history at the time. And the reality is that the approach to the academic approach to history has shifted uh, since then. And we need to really take a look at how our our work with history also needs to shift and change. Mm hmm. One of the most compelling uh, things that I that I found from your talk is how history is constantly being relooked at and revised and finding new evidence. Like history is constantly changing. Yeah. I found that to be so enlightening and obvious, right? Like you know, just because a story is one way when you hear it doesn't mean that it's set in stone. And I think that's something really important to bring into the Montessori classroom, that just because it's in our sacred albums, you know, doesn't mean that it has to stay that way. Do you know what I mean? Or that it's in in a history book or anything. Right. Um, Right. The past doesn't speak for itself. 
We, mm-hmm. it is interpreted. It is, you know, we find new evidence. It's, um, it's not something that just speaks entirely for, for itself. So that's an important thing to remember when we're taking a look at history stories and ideas with, um, with the children is that, um, you know, new evidence, new artifacts, new voices, new documents um, emerge. And that causes the stories that we've already known to be reinterpreted and adapted by historians and anyone else who's exploring. So it's, and it's not always even just new evidence. It's also context provided by current events or Mm -hmm. new sort of priorities based on the time that we're living in now, you know? Um, So, so yeah, that's, I think, valuable to bring to the children because they have a tendency to just believe whatever they read. And (laughs) we can see how dangerous that is right now Mm -hmm. in a culture where misinformation and lies get the same sort of platform that truth and uh, that truth does. So we have to help children recognize they need to be really critical consumers of information uh, and recognize that new knowledge can cause us to reinterpret information. Definitely. I think that's a really great point and something that I think adults struggle with and also I've seen with children just really just Googling something and then just taking it for what it is and then being like, well, that's true. So there it is. Um, <laughs> I'm working. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm working with some children right now virtually and I had one little guy telling me something about how many, I think how many of a type of turtles nests there are left and he and he said to me well I'm giving you a number but I haven't I'm not sure it's valid I haven't checked it with other sources I've only checked it with one and I thought (laughs) oh yes like because we had just been going through in the previous weeks uh, how to determine the validity of a source and how mm-hmm. to corroborate evidence. And so I was so proud of him That's being amazing. able to say, okay, well, I, I'm just telling you this number, but it may or may not be true because I haven't, I haven't checked it. It was, it was fantastic. That's amazing. I think that's such a great skill, right? And, and um, I mean, fact-checking and finding what is real and all of those things to instill that at a young age is just amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have any tips for how to do that with children? Like, you know, the one that you're working with, just um, any advice? <laughs> well, so when you're going to consider the validity of a source, um, it adults or children, um, you want to take a look at like who wrote or is putting this information out there. So whether it's a book or an article or online, like who wrote it? D- what are their cr- credentials? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can help you determine, like, is it, you know, just some guy down the street that decided to start a website or is it, <laughs> right. is it, or is it the guy down the street who started a website and has a PhD in the field and has worked and published and done all these things, right? So that's one thing right. to consider. When you look at a source, and especially this is true if you're going to go to Wikipedia first, which is a great place to start. Um, 
take a look and see what are the sources for that article. Are they reputable Mm -hmm. sources, right? So I talk with children about like, is it from a government site? Like, is it from the National Park Service? Then maybe, Mm -hmm. or National Geographic, does that seem like it might be a reasonable source? You know, and ask, you don't have to tell the children, you can ask them. Ask them to apply their knowledge. Oh, yeah, National Geographic seems like it would be a reasonable source to me. Why? Well, because they publish these magazines. They've been doing these things for, you know, like, um, so those, that's another thing to consider. Also look at what evidence is being offered. So a lot of people will make claims. And that just Mm -hmm. means you're saying whatever you think to be true, right? It's a claim. Right. But a claim needs to be supported with reasons and evidence. So see if that's true. See if it's been supported with reasons or and evidence or if it's just a claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and also looking for other sources to corrobor- corroborate. So, you know, who else is counting the number of nests and knows the exact right. amount, right? Um, right? And also look at when it was written. Something Mm -hmm. written in 1950 is going to have a very different sort of perspective than something written in the last 10 years. And that's just because different events and different knowledge (laughs) existed at that time than it does now. It doesn't necessarily mean that it will be invalid, but it's Mm -hmm. just something to pay attention to and double check, you know, because because so much something else has changed. So I also think it's a great opportunity to talk about the differences between like opinions of somebody and then an actual fact or like, you know what I mean? Like looking at different sources that you can come up with or you can find and showing them the difference between all of those. Right. I think people, but it's, it's easy to get confused, I think, you know, especially as a kid you know, with someone's opinion versus, you know, a study that they did. That makes sense. But an opinion can be supported with reasons and evidence. And so it's okay to have it even just be an opinion if there's reasons and evidence that support that opinion. So Mm -hmm. what happens oftentimes with opinions or any claim is that people don't support it. And that's when you want to be really careful and look for your own then um, reasons and evidence to to see if that opinion or a claim of any sort is valid, right? Totally. And it, I yeah. mean, it it can be as simple as you know, uh, I think that you know Milky Ways are the best candy bar, <laughs> right? right? You can do that with children, have them justify, so they can make a claim, and that's totally an opinion, but they can still justify it and and support it with reasons and evidence mm-hmm. for those reasons right cuz the evidence totally. can be when you know when when we had 20 milky way bars at halloween they got eaten in 2 days and you know the mounds bars took you know there we still have some left whatever right mm-hmm. like that's still mm-hmm. evidence for the claim even though it's an you know kind of an opinion right so that's what we right. want like opinions are valid um, oh yeah and they are they can be true, um, but we want to then look for like the reasons and the evidence. Yeah, I mean, and and what this is just getting my mind thinking about is how opinionated and research focused elementary children are, and how useful these types of lessons and experiences are and will be for them. Um, because I just, I mean, the amount of times I had a child 
asking me or telling me they were going to do a, a research project or a research. I mean, it's just all about research because they want to just devour information about whatever they're interested in and helping them, you know, figure out how to do that. And, you know, that it's just amazing. And it's perfect for this age group, you know? Yeah. And we and we really want to develop that critical thinking. And I think for me, yeah. like the events of the last year have shown that we really need to make sure that we're focusing on critical thinking and an, and an accurate understanding of history for with our children, because it's clear that our our general society is struggling with that, is struggling yeah. with both those things. And we want sure. the children we work with. You know, I, I said this at the conference, but, um, you know, we had about a month ago, we had in our, you know, in the U.S. Capitol building, anti-democratic and anti-government political forces that staged an insurrection, a violent insurrection. They took mm -hmm. the Confederate flag and put it in the middle of our Capitol. I mean, they yeah. and so and I'm I said, like, I'm sure probably the majority of them could do their math facts and they could read. Right. But they obviously don't understand history and don't have the ability to think critically and they don't have a clear sense of how to affect change in our in our government. So for for me this last year, I mean watching you know the the protests after the murder of George Floyd by police and then you know the long list of black people that were murdered by police, unarmed Black people mm -hmm. murdered by police this year, the global pandemic that, you know, really um, displayed a massive failure of our government in the United States yep. to, to manage that. And the fact that the U.S. didn't manage it had a, a, a ripple effect on the rest of the world. And so all of those right. things together really show me that... Um, our work with children requires we need to help them develop the skills they need to navigate these kinds of issues and to critically think about them and make well-informed decisions. And history mm -hmm. is a natural discipline to allow them to practice those skills. And so, and it's, like you said, really important to do at this age because their characteristics are really primed for it. Definitely. And when you talk about history this way and in, just in this conversation, it really makes history alive and current in a way. It doesn't make it seem old and outdated as I think a lot of history curriculum can be, you know, because history can right. be really boring, you know, if, if you're not really, when you were talking about how history is always changing, I remember thinking that I was like, that's such a cool perspective. And it's, it's not a perspective. It's how it is. It's true. Um, and how exciting to bring that to the kids. You know, yeah. I mean, they can discover new things about yeah. history and interpret yeah. new evidence. You know, that's that's yeah. the excitement of um, of the approach. So, speaking a little bit about our history materials that we have in the classroom, you touched upon this, and I want to just reiterate it because I think it's really important. I want to talk about the materials we have that you know, we should reconsider having in our classrooms or, you know, rethink about. Um, so what yeah, are your I, thoughts on that? <laughs> I think we need to really apply a critical lens to to 
our history approach. There's a lot of fantastic strengths to the way we approach history, right? We, we, it's very human centered. It's focused mm-hmm. on human capabilities and their gifts and using their hands and working together, which is a powerful way to approach history. You know, it's individualized. There's no set curriculum curriculum and it has the potential and the goal of being very inclusive of all of humanity just not you know not just the famous people and not just the white people right right but a lot of our materials were you know created in again in the mid 20th century so um i really encourage people to to carefully consider whether you're going to use some of the charts and things in the classroom or what you need to do to adapt them so that they are more representative of our our thoughts and approaches um, today. So, ex- for example, the fundamental needs chart, you know, beloved chart, humans um, have the same needs and and we simply meet them in different ways. And it's a great theme to, to help children recognize that humanity is you know, is all that is the same, right? We're not that different from one another. But there are a couple things we need to consider. Generally, with this approach about fundamental needs, I encourage you to really think about and recognize that racialized, marginalized, and exploited people did not always, and do not always, even now, have the ability to meet their needs, that that ability has been constrained by systems of racism and power. So it's not simply that they live in a different place and have chosen to meet their needs differently. It's also the fact that oppression and power have limited their opportunity to meet their needs. So we want to be careful. It's not something we're going to like, you know, throw at the six-year-olds. Um, right. But it's right. something that we want to be conscious of so that they understand, you know, um, enslaved people didn't meet their needs the way they did because that was their choice. Right. They right. they met their fundamental needs the way that they did because they were only allowed certain ways to meet their needs by mm-hmm. the uh, enslavers. Um, so we just want to we want to be sure that we're not forgetting that aspect of people meeting their fundamental needs. Mm-hmm. And then on that chart, there it's there's a lot of outdated pictures, but there's one that's outright racist, and that is um, in the circle that represents with a word with the word fur, where every other circle on the chart has an animal, a plant, or an object. Mm-hmm. In the one that says fur um, as a fundamental new human need for clothing, like how people met their need for clothing, it has two indigenous humans dressed, you know, in historical dress. So we have to think what message is that sending children about the humanity of these indigenous people when right. when all the other th- all the other things on this are plants, animals, and objects. Um, so I would, you know, I would cover that one up with something else, or, or right. you know, or or you can draw, you can draw your own fundamental needs chart, or the children can. I was just going to ask that, you know, for 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 teachers and guides who are are wondering about these things and reconsidering things, um, you know, still wanting to offer 
these lessons, you know, in a, in a new way, you know, is it appropriate to create your own fundamental needs chart? Of course, you know, of course, when, when, when these charts were created, um, you know, like what Mario used to do, I mean, where they have their roots is Mario out on rambles with the children talking about nature and the world and the cosmos and periodically stopping to sketch a chart to, um, to, to give an impression or to help the children see something or understand something. So mm-hmm. they have their roots in, you know, the, creating it in the moment. And then, you know, but that's hard for everyone to do all the time, right? So the charts were, so, you know, <laughs> right. were created to help teachers have these resources to support the children. So it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't go against the sort of purpose of the chart. If you create um, uh, charts that are, that stay true to this idea of showing that humans have fundamental needs, but you, um, you can have some representations that are, you know, not racist. <laughs> right. Of course. Right. And no, I, I think it's really, it's an important thing to, to note though, because um, just from personal experience, sometimes it feels like you can't touch the Montessori materials. You know, it feels like it's, well, it, you know, and that's going against our whole conversation about how, history is always changing and how we need to, you know, uphold, you know, principles of equity and everything like that. So it's good to just reiterate and say that out loud that, you know, yes, re-examine what you're presenting. Yep. And it's absolutely okay to change it, to reflect, you know, something appropriate. And, you know, to be clear, AMI Global is working on these charts right now. So they are working yeah. on charts, they're working on timelines, they're working to eliminate and update, you know, eliminate these seriously problematic images and update things. So um but I you just don't you don't have to wait for that. Um it's okay, it's okay to mm-hmm. to just start on things now and when AMI has it available, they'll let you know. They will let you know. That's great. That's great that they're yeah, mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um anything else? that we, you know, need to re-examine. I know this is a big conversation, but I just wanted to offer a few a few ideas. I I would just, you know, really interrogate kind of all of it. Um the migrations charts are a challenge uh in my mm-hmm. opinion because the the migrations of humans are generally well, first of all, there's no generally accepted like types, really. I mean, there's if you if you dig into the how how historians and anthropologists and others evaluate and discuss migrations, like billiard ball is not one of them, right? So you're not going right. to be able to like Google billiard ball migration and find examples. Like these aren't just these aren't just types of migrations that people talk about. Um, and then mm-hmm. also migrations are really important to study. I mean, there's a lot of movements of peoples throughout history that um, that impact our understanding of history. So it's reasonable to to look at them. The challenge I have with some of the migrations ch- charts, or a lot of them, is that they, um, like for example, like the billiard ball one. Most most migrations that occurred where one set of people moved into another another territory that another you know group of people were living and pushed that group out that wasn't just like a ball you know bumping against another ball in a game right right, right. um right. it's it quite often and most often 
happened as a result of like force and oppression and violence and yeah. brutality. Right. So if we if we compare some of these movements to a chart representing a game, we mm -hmm. are sort of sanitizing and dehumanizing a little bit some of that. And it's not sure. it's not to say that I want to present in all its brutality some of these movements to mm -hmm. to young children. But I also don't want to give them the idea that it was just um, an elegant game. So I, I guess right. I would ask everyone to just take a look at all of the ways, like the ideas of what we want to talk about with the children are strong and valid. But some of the ways we approach it may not fit with current times. And so I'd encourage everyone to really bring some critical interrogation to our history work so that we are not inadvertently um, reinforcing systems of white, white supremacy by trying to sanitize or cover up or hide the sort of right. the narrative of, of what's going on. Definitely. I think that's so important. And I think also... You know, for guides, anybody out there who's who's thinking about these things, um, and if you don't know where to start, you know, reach out to your other Montessori guides. Reach out to, um, e I mean, EAA. They the EAA talk has been sort of a bustle since the refresher course. Um, definitely, what I'm trying to say is this is really important. And it is really, also, it's pretty overwhelming, but it's okay. And you just have to dive in and don't be afraid to ask for help. Yeah. I mean, you can totally reach out to me. I don't have all the answers. This isn't the, this is something, <laughs> right. but this is something we all need to be like thinking about and working on. And one big yes. component yeah. in your work, if you're supporting children and learning history, is it's just your job to become an active learner of history. Like you really mm -hmm. have to start learning. You have you need to assume that what you have learned up till now may or may not be uh, completely accurate or nuanced enough for your understanding. So you need to really dig into your own um, knowledge base. And um, so I recommend, I highly recommend um, uh, the crash course videos, which I think I've talked about before. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they're like 10 or 15 minutes long. And if you can, de it, it's mm -hmm. essentially an AP history course online, you know, sort of online. It's to help AP history students. And they have all sorts of different subjects, not just history. But and and honestly, mm -hmm. the AP history has done a lot of work to um, to be inclusive and eliminate um, some white supremacy from its curriculum. So it's not um, it's not perfect, but it's a great start. And that's an easy thing to do. If you can commit to watching one of those a week or three of those a week, that's right. going to help build your your history knowledge, um, as well as Definitely. like reading. There's lots of great books, especially books about marginalized cultures that have not traditionally been studied in history or had been avoided. Um, the books are coming out all the time, like um, Ibram Kendi and um, Keisha Blaine. Um, Keisha Blaine just came out with an edited volume called 400 Souls. And each each of the 400 souls that you learn about in that book are, is written by a different Black author or poet or activist oh, wow. or professor Great. or whatever. There's a and um, mm -hmm. about 400 um, different people in Black history. So 
there's lots of new stuff coming out that's accessible. Like for me, I've just been reading, you know, one or two of those uh, every few days to just, you know, build up my knowledge. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, I only have time for little snippets of things. And so I just build in time for those little snippets. Um, And that's where books like that and crash courses, videos, those kinds of things are, are great uh, resources. Um, You can uh, reach out to your local museums. Uh, Most museums, most public historians right now are really focused on um, bringing forth unheard voices. And so tap into that and find out about local history and things like that from your local museums. Um, you can follow historians on Twitter and we can, um, we can share some, uh, names with you that, that would be useful because historians like talk about this stuff all the time on Twitter. I mean, as nerdy Mm -hmm. as that is, right. But they do. (laughs) Um, and if you're a Twitter user, which I am learning how to be, um, that's a great resource for getting snippets. You know, Heather Cox Richardson is one who's got like a blog and she's become very popular in the last year, um, you know, every day kind of interpreting events in the context of history, current events in the context mm. of history. So there's like all sorts of ways that you can do it. And I know you guys are busy and you're stretched this year and it's been such a hard year. Um, and that's true. Um and this is hard work to build your knowledge so that you can support the children. But we can do these hard things and we need to, right? Like there's um, mm-hmm. there's some concerning forces at work uh, in, and in terms of, um, in, you know, impacting democracy in our, in our sort of mm-hmm. our country. And it's important to understand those and to then be able to present as um, let the children explore history in a way that's going to help them you know be critical in their thinking about our pa- the our country's past as well as our country's present and future yeah oh my gosh what amazing resources Jamie that was awesome and definitely um, should people reach out to you at all things Montessori or through rising tide what would you yeah want? I mean you can come to rising tide um, if you're interested in some history resources, we have a very incomplete, um, <laughs> uh, you know, preliminary start on some resources for people with U.S. history. Um, and that's at risingtide.org slash or whatever backslash whatever. We'll put it. I'll link it. You'll link it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. U.S. history resources. Yeah. Um, so there's some stuff linked there that can help you. And you can always reach out to me. Um, through Rising Tide, uh, as this is just part of the work, part of the work that we're working on. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Jamie, again, for, you know, going through this again. It's such an amazing and important topic. And yeah, if you guys have any questions, reach out to Jamie. And of course, you can always email email us at allthingsmontessoripod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And yeah, have fun with history. I really just you know dig in yeah fun. it is it's it is such fun when you learn these things so yeah have fun with it <laughs>